I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I just want to introduce this book briefly and then ask John some questions. As I'm sure most people in the audience know, in 1930, William Emerson published a book called Seven Types of Ambiguity. And at its most banal, this book showed that ambiguity in poetry actually, as it were, releases meaning. The poems are more intelligible, more interesting, if one includes in one's reading of them the fact that there's multiple denotation, connotation, etc., etc. What John does, I think, with the title is obviously to allude to this book, but also to show the ways in which actually atheism is an immensely kind of ambiguous term. So on the one hand, it's even more interesting than we thought it was, and in another sense, it's even less interesting than we thought it was. <laughs> and these two things are run together in a very, very interesting way. Just for the sake of people who don't, haven't yet read the book, I just want to read you John's initial pricey of, of the chapters of the book, because they're very clear. Applying Emerson's method, I will examine seven kinds of atheism. The first of them, the so-called new atheism, contains little that is novel or interesting. After the first chapter, I will not refer to it again. <laughs> the second type is secular humanism, a hollowed-out version of the Christian belief in salvation and history. Third, there is the kind of atheism that makes a religion from science, a category that includes evolutionary humanism, mesmerism, dialectical materialism, and contemporary transhumanism. Fourth, there are modern political religions from Jacobinism through communism and Nazism to contemporary evangelical liberalism. Fifth, there is the atheism of God-haters, such as the Marquis de Sade, Dostoevsky's fictional character Ivan Karamazov, and William Empson himself. Sixth, I will consider the atheisms of George Santayana and Joseph Conrad, which reject the idea of a creator God without having any piety towards humanity. Seventh and last, there are the mystical atheism of Arthur Schopenhauer and the negative theologies of Benedict Spinoza and the early 20th century Russian Jewish fideist Leo Shestov, all of which in different ways point to a God that transcends any human conception. John, just in terms of the arc of your work, it seems to me that there's effectively a growing interest in religion. And I wonder where that comes from, if you see what I mean, what that comes out of. You're right that it's, it grows, but the, the interest in religion becomes more explicit rather than greater. A lot of my earlier writings on politics referred to the ways in which politics in the last few hundred years, and certainly in the 20th century, could only really be understood if you saw the impulses that were expressed in political action in the 20th century, especially in its most extreme forms, as being versions of, or at least closely connected with, the impulses and human needs that are embodied in religion. And one of the first books I read, maybe this answers your question in the form of a narrative, so, um, one of the first books I read on politics was one of the most influential um, and I read that book over 50 years ago. It was Norman Cohen's book, Pursuit of the Millennium. And 40 years after having read it, I met him. And we had conversations, which as I acknowledge in this book, 
informed the writing of this book. And Cohn, in that book, based on original research, original manuscripts of translating original things that haven't been translated before, suggested that the radical political movements, the revolutionary political movements of the 20th century, or at least some of them, some of them could be understood best in terms of the millenarian movements of the late uh, medieval period and the early modern period. And these millenarian movements, which occurred all, all over Europe, were movements that wanted to destroy the existing ecclesiastical structures of the church to turn society upside down, uh, to introduce an entirely new type of um, social order. And they did that against the background of um, a belief in a second coming, that God was manifest or embodied in their prophets. And if they could overthrow everything, turn everything upside down, there'd be a new world. There'd be at the end of history, if uh, a phrase that crept back into use quite recently. And he argued, Cohn, that um, some of the leading 20th century movements, not excluding Nazism, although it had a different form in Nazism, could be expressed, could be understood in, in terms of this mode of thinking being embodied in different beliefs and in seemingly different concepts. <coughs> and that to me was a sort of revelation uh, when I was about 20, in that it suggested to me two things. First of all, things that then got talked about a lot uh, by philosophers, language and so on, and structuralists and post-structuralists, which is that patterns of thought could survive and renew themselves. Ways of thinking about human beings and human history and the human world could survive and renew themselves in seemingly completely different forms. So that most of the 20th century revolutionary movements, including Nazism, were explicitly or avowedly atheist. Maoism, uh, Bolshevism, uh, all the forms of communism going back, which claimed their origins in Marx and so on. But also, if you read, for example, some of the autobiographical writings of uh, Arthur Kersler, not only true of communism, but Kersler had the unusual experience of when he was a, um, working for the Comintern of traveling throughout Nazi Europe mm. and talking to some of the leading Nazi intellectuals at that time. And many of them were vulgar Nietzscheans. Every single one of them that he talked to was, a, was, a, was an atheist. And if they had an objection to Bolshevism, it was that it wasn't radical enough. It didn't kill people coolly enough and in the right categories. It wasn't racist, for example. They were racists, like scientific racists. But it hadn't taken the destruction of religion as far as it should be taken. But the insight I got from Cohn was, and his book is still in print, is that these uh, millenarian mythologies had been renewed in, in secular form. So you could say, now, although I've written more and more explicitly about religion over the last decade or so, I also did a book called Black Mass in which I discussed some of these themes, that it's been there all along. And I continue to think this, and this is why I find even the most sophisticated secular understandings of um, modern politics unsatisfactory. Because unless one understands the way in which a particular religious traditions, but all categories of thinking, keep surfacing in, in modern <coughs> politics. I don't think you understand it. And one of the things I discuss in there, Adam, as you know, is I take an actual example of uh, early modern millenarian leader called Bockelson, who took over a German city and installed a form of theocratic communism, which included, towards the end, being forbidden to close your windows, you had to eat in public, and women, usually they uh, get, the, get the hard end of this kind of thing, became the sexual property of any man who who wanted, who wanted them, and if they didn't, if they resisted, they could be executed. It a, but it was a theocratic uh, uh, form of communism rooted in apocalyptic beliefs about the return of, uh, of Jesus. Interestingly, in the Nazi period, two people commented explicitly on the way in which not only did Hitler uh, uh, reproduce some of the actual policies of Bockelson several hundred years ago, but Hitler, they both commented, um, one of them a German aristocratic anti-Nazi who um, perished in one of the camps, and the other the wife of a 
uh, a, a famous Jewish diarist, diarist at that time, commented on the, on the extraordinary similarity between portraits that have been made of Bockelson and Hitler. So what's extraordinary is that fa some of the facial expressions. That's interesting to me because it's what could seem to be more different than uh, an early modern or late medieval experiment in theocratic communism and Nazism led by a, a vulgar uh, um, fantasieca autodidact whose view of the world was shaped by racist biology and mm -hmm. pseudoscience. What could be more different? Yet, I think they were very similar. Mm -hmm. And I got that from um, Cohen, who, by the way, also in my conversations, I'll stop now, but I don't think this is widely known. He, I asked him how he first got this idea. He said that, well, in the Second World War, he was uh, drafted into British, British intelligence, and as part of that, he was tasked to um, debrief senior Nazis who they captured at the end of the war. And one of his duties, as he put it, was to uh, listen in on their conversations without them knowing. And he said what struck him was their incredibly apocalyptic frame of mind. They'd say things like, fortunately it turned out not to be true, they'd say, well, at least we've destroyed Western civilization. <laughs> true, we're defeated by now. And some of us are going to be executed and so on. But at least we brought the whole damn thing down. They hadn't. But that gave him a clue which, when he came back after the war, he became a professor of French. He said he had no interest in French, but it was the only job he could, uh, could get. And then David Astor at the Observer then mm. endowed a chair for him yeah. Sussex. And he was able to do the work that produced this book. I don't, I don't think there would have been, even then when academic life was more pluralistic than I think that it is now, there would be any room. So that's how it happened. Mm. It seems to me anybody reading mm. your books is forced in a way to think about change very, mm. very differently. Mm. Because it seems to me there's a real dilemma at the heart of these books, which mm. is really interesting. Which is on the one hand, evolution is endorsed mm. as a natural process of change. Mm. There's natural selection and there's genetic mutation. Mm. And that's happening. Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution, exactly. On the other hand, there's a story that, that in which, in a way, nothing changes. Mm that there is a continual return of more or less repressed forms of political movements. Mm -hmm. And so, on the one hand, there, there's, it seems to me, a radical skepticism mm -hmm. about the orchestrated attempt to change, as it were, human nature. Mm -hmm. Because human nature only changes, as it were, in Darwinian ways. Mm -hmm. Which then leaves you with a dilemma, as it were, about politics. Mm -hmm. And I suppose uh, what it makes me wonder is, and this is obviously a large question, it's addressed in all sorts of ways in your books differently. What kind of political action mm. or activism seems worth engaging in, mm. in the light of these two fundamental paradigms? Mm. Well, one thing I've written um, about politics is that um, the best way of, the truest way of understanding politics is that it's the search for partial and temporary remedies to recurring human evils. In other words, you never get rid of them. And that's a quite a sort of hard thing to accept because what it means is that if you start on the basis that well, I mean, a lot of people think like this. It's natural to do so for us now to think in the following way. We'll attack these really gross evils. We'll reduce them, we'll abolish them. Having done that, we'll move on to others. And if I wanted to be sort of um, satirical about it, I could say it's a sort of picture of humanity as a kind of collective subject, which in early modern times it kind of begins to turn around in bed, so sort of, I'm fed up with all this religion, let's try something different, we'll try, get rid of um, medievalism, feudalism, we'll move on to democracy. Having got democracy, we'll consider oppressed groups, including majorities like women and gay people. And we'll move on and do these various, uh, make these various advances. And the assumption in all that is the meliorist assumption that what has been gained will not be lost. Mm. So in other words, we abolish slavery, it's not going to come back. We've repressed anti-Semitism, it's not going to come back. We've prohibited torture and it's still practiced in various barbaric forms in parts of the world, but democracies are not going to bring it back. Uh, and that I think is a kind of, it's a deep-rooted way of thinking, very deep-rooted, and yet it's quite recent. 
because in the ancient world, um, in the uh, uh, whether that be the uh, Greco-Roman world or the Indian world or the world of China or uh, Japan or pretty well everywhere, uh, it was assumed that there were real advances in the history of civilizations. They actually occurred. There were periods when we were more peaceful, where there was more wealth creation, where there was more peaceful coexistence between different types of people. There were more better art and so on. They happened. They were real. Those improvements or those advances, they actually happened, kept happening actually. But what was gained was always lost. After high periods of higher civilization, there was declined into barbarism. And as I've tried to express that insight, what it means is that civilization doesn't come from God, it doesn't come from a platonic heaven. Civilization is natural for humans, but so is barbarism. And that's a sort of a very un indigestible. Yeah. Because the natural response of people is to say, well, if that's true, why should I do anything? That, then to which I reply, well, read some things or listen to some plays. I mean, in many ways, Shakespeare, although he wrote in a Christian context, Shakespeare, as it were, evokes in many of his plays, like Beth, Lear, and others, a pre-Christian uh, or non-Christian uh, um, view of the world in which what is gained is always lost. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try and gain it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try and keep it a bit longer. So, sorry, can yeah, I on, yeah, do it. If so, if one is against progress, uh, you asked what, how it would. Yes, but well, I'm just thinking, if one's against progress, yeah. what can one then be for? Doesn't have to be before. I mean, I'll give an answer. A poet I like very much. He died very young. Was Keith Douglas? Uh, died in his twenties in the desert, fighting in the Second World War, and wrote some of the most beautiful poems and beautiful prose. You know, I read it, but the best account of hmm. what it's like to see large-scale death in a war. And he was asked why he was fighting. What are you fighting for? He said, oh, screw that. I'm fighting against Nazism. I think it can be enough. Yeah. Yeah, people say, well, yes, but you must have a vision of democracy. You must have a vision of democracy. No, he said, I haven't. I don't, well, I may, maybe I have, but I don't need one. It's not why I'm fighting. I'm not fighting for proportional representation <laughs> or uh, reforms in local government. I'm fighting against Nazism. Uh, so I don't think you have to have a positive vision to really resist the evils of the world. But the question was, what sort of politics would, would that lead to? I guess one thing to say, and this is a very shocking thing for many people, is that it wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it can lead to various types of politics in which you, you confront or resist, even if your resistance is going to be defeated, in which you resist the dominant evils of your world. And I put it sometimes by saying, sometimes citing some of Freud's writings, I say that you, one can resist one's fate in the full knowledge that one cannot overcome it. Yeah. And so um, what would be an example now in the present, present day world? I was trying to think of one actually, but coming up on the train and one came pretty quickly. Supposing you were a Yazidi, a Yazidi woman, for example, had been fighting uh, ISIS um, and uh, uh, with other Yazidi women, and you're fighting now, even now, and you're fighting now in the knowledge, I would say it's knowledge, not just belief, that you either have been, you either are going to be, already have been betrayed by the great powers, as they have been. You said they were being genocided, they were, they were going to be offered places, to go, they're not going to be offered anything. They're just going to go on fighting, those who will go on fighting. So I'm sure many of them know it, and yet they go on. Now I admire that, that's not exactly political action, but it's a very strong form mm. of human action. Mm. And it's one which I think uh, is fully compatible with the, I don't know whether they share that view, the view of mine, probably many of them don't, reject it even. But it's compatible with the non-progress view yeah. that, that I'm, I'm developing. You just yeah. resist the great evils. You could say, well, don't you have a kind of glowing idea? No, because you know, once you've, if you can really, you can't get rid of terrible evils, but if you can sort of, button them off, you can stave them off, you can push them to, to, to the margins for a while. Yeah. Yeah. You then deal with whatever occurs then. Yeah. And if they come back, as they do, you do it again, if you're still around to yeah. do it. I, I mean, this, this may be another way of thinking about the same thing, but I think one of the very striking and amazing things in this book is the idea that we may still not know what it is to live a secular life. Yes. That Actually, if atheism is simply another form of religion, mm. so to speak, 
and everything is fundamentally organized in and around and by a religious sensibility. We actually have never lived a secular life. So it's as though that's the political experiment that's never been made. It can't be made, I don't think, actually. I mean, one thing is most human cultures haven't had a concept of the secular. The ancient Greeks didn't have one. What does it mean to be secular, to have no gods at all? You see, one of the points I make in the book over and over again, although in each case briefly, is that many of the, or most of the categories of secular thought that we operate now are uh, renditions or translations of ideas taken from religion. The very idea of humanity that we mm. operate with now as a collective agent. You know, if you think of humanity as an animal species, can't do anything. I mean, we don't wake up and say, what have our, you know, what have the, what have orangutans done recently? I mean, what's the latest step forward in orangutan civilization? You might say, well, humans are different because they're reflective, because yes, but in polytheistic civilizations, polytheistic traditions, it's fully recognized. There are tremendously reflective forms of thought there, but it's not assumed that there is a, an entity, a collective agent, humanity that can do that. That comes straight from monotheism and maybe some traditions of Stoicism and Platonism as well, but it comes from those, from certain traditions of thought which are either explicitly monotheistic or as in Stoicism and, and Platonism, mystical. In other words, it's not empirical, there's nothing empirical about it. All that is empirically observable is the multitudinous human animal with its different ways of life, its different values, contending against each other. Mm. That's all we mm. really know. That's actually all there really is in our own lives. But what, what that then drains, yeah. I think, is yeah. the idea of consensus. Mm. It's that once that's acknowledged, once that kind of multiplicity mm. is acknowledged, yeah. then consensus ceases to be a useful ideal or aim. Mm. And then if, if consensus isn't the aim, the question mm. then, what is? Well, agreement isn't the aim. There's a difference here between agreement and some practice of toleration or modus vivendi in which we live together despite. Yeah, and it's coexistence. It's, it's coexistence, yeah. not agreement. Well, here, Wittgenstein, not a Wittgensteinian, but he did say some great things. One of them, he said, uh, in order to uh, uh, disagree, you first have to agree. Let me give you an example now. If you think of the political contestations of most of the 20th century, the 20 to 21st century, at least in, say, well, especially in the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, but even longer than that, there were examples of um, agreement underlying disagreement because what people disagreed about were economic models. Which economic model will give the most wealth distributed the widest? Some people would say it's central planning, it's communism. They would say, no, it's not, it's the free market. And in Europe, the predominant view is a mixed economy, Swedish social democracy, Jones. So there was a kind of argument there. But think of the, just think of the conflicts that are breaking out now. This little infant, Alfie, now, I take a rather old-fashioned sort of view on that, which is that um, the doctors of the law were broadly right. <laughs> Put that on one side, that what matters is the child. But if you have a clash between people with a, a view of um, the sanctity of life, which is that you don't end it when it doesn't have to be ended, he's got to be someone kept alive, or at least he's got to be allowed to go, and et cetera, et cetera. You have, a, you have a, a clash, you have a conflict, which is much more profound, to my mind, than the, than the conflicts about socialism and capitalism. Mm. Because actually it's very hard for people to understand each other then. There isn't the agreement presupposed by the disagreement. I mean, I, for example, I mean, I, I can't really argue taking the view that I do, which in the book I embrace the last two of the atheisms, or I endorse them. I mean, I'm an atheist in those senses. I mean, if I'm talking to, a, although I've had many useful conversations with believers, not only Christians, in the end, there are two different worlds of discourse. They say, but surely you must think that there is something uniquely and, uh, and, uh, and profoundly and singularly important about human life, and it must be preserved wherever it comes. They say, no, I don't think that. You don't think that? Which, by the way, also, though, there are secular humanists who take this. You mean you don't think? You, you don't think that a world without humans would be denuded of value? Certainly not. Be lots of sentient beings who have very valuable lives, including cats, but uh, I'm very fond, fond of, but lots and lots of, uh, there'll be all sorts of values still going on, and yet secular humans, so I think, take from monotheism the idea that there is something unique about, singular and unique and incommensurable in the value of a human life. 
they, they insist on, on that too. So um, I don't think it's the case that, depends what you mean by consensus. If you mean coexistence, I don't think that it might become more necessary. I mean, of course, there's nothing, it's not logically imposed on anyone. Someone might simply decide, I don't care what other people want or value, I'm going to impose my values. And some radical fundamentalists took that view from within a different, completely different. Some Nazis took that view. What we like is power. And you say, but you're impressed. Well, that's what we want to do. <laughs> it's exactly what we want to do. We, we do want to impose that. And if, if they're not accepted or if these human groups don't have any value in our view of things, that's the end of that. So I do, myself, I mean, if you would ask what kind of politics it would be, it would be one that pursued modus vivendi or coexistence where possible, but there would be some context where it wasn't possible, yeah. 1940. You may have, in a way, just answered this question, but one thing that's striking about this book is that your writing is never rancorous. I mean, there are strong feelings in it and so on, but the new atheists really get to you. <laughs> yes, it's perfectly true. What is it about them? Almost to the point of rancor, some of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or beyond that point. What is it about them that really gets to you? It's a number of things. I mean, it's a bullying attitude to people. If you go to church, to a synagogue, to a temple, if you pray, if you do any of these things, you're a fool. Now, my view is anybody who says that is a fool, or really thinks that is just a fool. Because some of the, so that's where the, I mean, in yeah. a sense, the rancor yeah. is reciprocal. Yeah. Um, but there's another reason why it, it tends to rank here, which is that in the few debates, I've stopped having them and won't have any, with uh, uh, new atheists, I find that they are remarkably immune to reason. I mean, this, of course, is probably true <clears throat> of a certain kind of rationalism, um, which is that it already knows what the answers to questions are mm -hmm. without having to look at anything like the human world. It sort of just knows. As I've said about them, you can, you know, it's as if you could answer all these fundamental questions by picking down a dictionary. Religion, an irrational belief in the supernatural. Well, that's happening. Well, you know, you might move a step further and you might say, well, what would a sociologist or an evolutionary biologist or a cultural historian or talk up, say, about religions? You might want to find out how they've actually worked in human life. And that would be a vast thing because it would go way beyond monotheism. Uh, and it would include what I call atheist religions. Yeah. That's to say religions that don't contain a creator God. I mean, for me, and this came out of conversation with Adam, I mean, the way I think of uh, atheism is not in terms of any formal definition of a worldview or a belief or a proposition, but is in a pragmatic way, a loosely pragmatic I'm an atheist is someone who just doesn't need the idea yeah. of a creator yeah. God. Yeah. So if you haven't got the idea of a creator God, you don't need it, you're not interested in it, you don't want it, have no interest in it at all, then you're an atheist. But of course, in that sense, many Buddhist traditions would be atheist because they explicitly reject the idea of a creator God. They explicitly reject the idea of the soul, even. Taoism, original chaos, no creator God. Most forms of polytheism and all forms of animism would say spirit isn't something supernatural. The natural world is full of spirits, but not a creator God, a creator spirit. Many forms of animism, they all don't have. Etc. Etc. So uh, there's a kind of vast range of um, atheisms. Bernard Williams said, "Unimaginative work comes from arguing with the wrong people." <laughs> and it seems to me one of the things that's very many things that's very interesting about this book is, that in a sense, you're arguing with the right people, yes. so to speak. Yes. That there are people here that have been found through which you can, as we elaborate, what do you think? It seems to me that the heroes of this book, if there are such things, are basically Santayana and Conrad. Yes. What do they have in common, if anything? Mm. I'll go back to the other question just in, in a moment. I mean, what I, I, when I was writing this book, and I talked about this with my editor who's here, I toyed for a while with um, not mentioning the New Atheists at all, just completely ignoring them, in the light of not arguing with the wrong people. And I thought, well, yes, but most of the potential readers of the book, they'll be the atheists they read, so it's not fair. So it wouldn't work. So I tried to reduce it to the shortest possible space, about 20 pages or a bit, a bit less, and then move on to other atheists, people who didn't need the idea of God or a creator God or didn't want one, such an idea. And among them, as you say, the two writers, uh, one a philosopher, other a writer of fiction, 
um, that embody the kind of atheism I admire the most and also which I think is worth exploring the most for us now because it's the one that is the least dependent on monotheism. It's the one that steps out of monotheism the most. It's the atheism of Santayana and Conrad. What, why do I admire? Well, one reason is, it might sound kind of odd, is that they both lived according to their respective atheisms. Santayana is very unusual in having lived according to his philosophy. It's not something that philosophers make a practice of. But he did. As soon as he could, he left academic life. He was asked when he decided to leave Harvard. He said, six months before I signed the contract. He got an inheritance that enabled him to move. He never went back to America, although he was invited back to America to a non-teaching position at Harvard more than once. He was offered a non-teaching, non-administrative, non-anything fellowship in Oxford. Turned that down. Uh, he liked to live initially in opulent hotels. He made a lot of money himself from a novel, a very good novel, mm. The Last Puritan. He even produced a film script for it. <laughs> so he wasn't hard up. But he gave nearly all the money away, most of it um, anonymously, some to Bertrand Russell when Bertrand Russell was on his uppers, and ended up in a nunnery. Spent the last 10, 15 years of his life, had no belief at all in monotheism. But he ended up there because he found it peace and quiet was quite pleasant. And he could stay there all day in his pajamas and, uh, and be vis visited by them. He said, uh, he accepts guests, but like the Pope, he doesn't invite anyone. Uh, so that's what, but what I like in his attitude is his contemplative serenity. Yeah. He made sacrifices. He was probably or almost certainly gay, but he was also probably or almost certainly a celibate. And you could see that, if you like, as a, a sacrifice. He sacrificed a part of his nature for the sake of peace of mind, I think. But he was explicit about that because when he wrote, he said, people ask me if I'm happy and I reply, I'm content. Um, when he was dying, by the way, literally in those last minutes before he became unconscious, he was asked <laughs> uh, whether he suffered any pain. He said, yes, great physical pain, but no moral pain whatsoever. <laughs> so he just wanted to make it <laughs> get down <laughs> that he wasn't being converted because priests descended on him in the, in the last year. And when he did die, there was a question of where his remains would go. Nobody knew because he'd been in a nunnery, but he definitely wasn't a believer. So in the end, he was buried in the Spanish um, uh, cemetery in Rome because he'd never renounced his Spanish nationality and never acquired American nationality either. So I admire that. Conrad, different, he led a much more adventurous life. And here there's something deep in his atheism. What he admired in human beings was a sort of consequence of his atheism, which was the ability and the willingness to assert oneself against fate. In other words, what he admired in human beings was how they dealt with the irremediable, not how they could improve it. They could improve it by dealing with it, of course, but they couldn't avoid it. And if you, find, if you look for anything religious in his writings, it turns out, I think, to be the sea, the, the godless ocean. He uses, he uses religious language with deliberate irony about the sea and about the godless ocean. And it's not the closeness of the ocean to human beings that he likes. It's quite the opposite. He doesn't like the idea of a divine mind. He doesn't want an idea of, which is interested in our well-being. He likes the, the impersonality of the sea. So he gets one or two of his characters to express what this means. For example, in I don't mention this in the book, but I should have done. Uh, he gets um, Marlowe in um, Lord Jim to say, you know, how does one, he says, well, to be born as a human being is like entering a dream. That's what it means. You fall into the world as you fall into a dream. And you begin to sink, you begin to drown. What do you do then? He says, well, you just immerse yourself in the destructive, immerse yourself, and you'll find you're borne up by the water beneath you. The impersonal, godless sea. Eventually, it will drown you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But in the meantime, you've had a glimpse of the light. I, I think that was his, that was the way he... So I admire that enormously. There's no idea of progress. There's no, if you want to read his views on progress, read a wonderful uh, exchange of letters he had with Bertrand Russell. When Bertrand Russell goes to China, he says, well, the solution to China is obvious, socialism. That's what will solve it. And uh, Conrad writes back, well, he says, I dare say, but uh, nothing like that's going to happen. There will be profound conflict and profound uh, many, many generations um, there, as of course the then was in Europe with the First World War um, and the collapse, tremendous amount of death and destruction in Europe, the Russian Revolution, and then of course after that, Nazism. So he has no, um, as I said in the book, he has no piety towards humanity, but he admires certain human qualities tremendously. And that communicated itself to Russell. Um, so much so, I think he, in his own way, fell in love with Conrad. Mm-hmm. And he called his son, Conrad, the next Lord Russell he called. I don't think the love was entirely reciprocated. Uh, Conrad was a, a person, he didn't let almost anyone close to him. Mm-hmm. But he I admire in that too because he lived from the age of 16, he was a seaman. When he was very young, he took part in an attempted coup d'etat. He was a gun runner, traveled all over the world, took great risks. And he never had any money, even when he made a lot out of his writings, because he spent it all on living in a certain kind of way in crazy investments. He invested in every crazy investment scheme invented by uh, human beings pretty well everywhere. But I admire that. By the way, at the very end of his life, uh, he got an official envelope, which he was too scared to open, uh, because he thought it was a tax demand. When he eventually opened it, it turned out to be the offer of a knighthood, which he immediately refused. I admire that too. So what's in Conrad? It's, this, it's the idea that if you give up the hope of progress, the, the faith in progress, because it's a faith, not, a, not something based in. When people talk about the existence of progress, it's very like or functionally identical to talking about the existence of God. It's the same thing. Because if they give it up, they lose the meaning of their lives. Conrad didn't need that. What he said was, well, the background of the, the godless ocean, a cipher for human life, the human world, is what enables human beings to uh, express and display their, what were to him their most valuable qualities, which was to assert themselves against impossible odds. So is it like a belief in that which can't be improved? I think it's just a fact that nothing can be improved for long, because after all, we all die. Of course, there are people in California who would deny that now. There are people in California who say they're not going to die. People who spend a thousand, one of them was interviewed recently, he said, I'm down to only, I'm spending only a thousand dollars a week on my vitamin preparations. If you take a thousand dollars a week of vitamin preparations, you can hang on to about 2042, I think it is now, when the new technologies come on stream and you won't (laughs) die. So you can live long enough not to die. Now, I think that's a fantasy in in the Freudian sense. But I think it's also obviously, it's an absurdity in a deeper sense, because it's, I'm not denying that new technologies could come along and keep us, or some of us who could afford them, those of us who could afford them, alive a lot longer. But those technologies would also be used by other purposes, which would bring back into the human world, even of those who benefit from these technologies, 
what really death stands for in human thinking, which human life, which is unconquerable contingency. Mm. That's to say, if we, if for example, um, one of these Californian immortalists manages to upload his or her mind into cyberspace, I mean, I have a question as to whether what that is actually is it just an <coughs> app floating about? Is it a person? One of them is, by the way, is constructing a, a virtual, and I find this very poignant. One of them is constructing a virtual um, version of his death, dead father. And the reason, having constructed this, he believes that he'll be able to converse with the dead and find out things which he, dead father, never told him. Now, maybe that's possible, but I still don't think there's anything there. But even if there was something there, if the next big war is a cyber war, this this entity floating there, this post father, this post this this app floating up there, or maybe will could be snuffed out in the course of the war because it ultimately these these cyber the cyber world is not a way out of the human world, it's a projection of the human world. It depends on material facilities, networks. If they go kaput in a cyber war, not impossible, even quite likely perhaps, then these things will be snuffed out as well. So the belief that through technology death can be avoided completely. Maybe it can be postponed and postponed and postponed, but not avoided because what death means in this, in this context is the triumph of conflict and um, contingency, which is what Conrad thought atheism was about. Because what it meant was what kind of attitude, what kind of human stance do you take to that? Do you assert yourself against it with those you trust or love or uh, uh, or work with, in his case. Work was a very important bond between humans, for, much more important than religion or language or ethnicity or anything. It was work. Uh, or do you just lie down? When I think Conrad, I admire because he, he didn't lie down. Mm. Well, perhaps on that note, we should open this up to the audience. And we should both answer. Sure, okay. Well, great. Um, some of the most, I thought some of the most ecstatic language came from the exchange, in my memory it was Santayana and Bertrand mm. Russell, but I guess it was Joseph Conrad and Bertrand Russell. It was, yeah. Right, and it brought to mind uh, the language of romantic love to me. And if there was some kind of Russell was in love with Conrad. Re okay, just, well. He thanks. was in love with Conrad. Okay. So my question was then in this huge survey of a variety of atheistic thinkers, do you see linkages or kind of systematic, maybe not systematic, patterns linking uh, an attitude to belief in deity? and belief in romantic love? No. Not really at all? Not really, because for one thing, there are ancient atheists like Lucretius and uh, Epicureans who deliberately re rejected the version of, of romantic love that existed in their own culture. They said it's a form of mental sickness. What you need is bags of sex. It'll sort of inoculate you against romantic love. That was their view. So there's no, I don't, but on the other hand, I mean, there's a huge wide range of views on this, uh, depending on people's different experiences. And um, uh, Santayana wrote about romantic love, and he said it's one of the great goods of human life, but I don't want it. So and as I say, that's... It just sounds so much like his, his view of God, you know? Um, okay. I mean, or maybe not. Maybe. On the other hand, he attacked, Santayana attacked Lucretius, the, the, you know, the poet, the Roman poet, who only one copy of his poem survived and then got down to us now. He attacked Lucretius because he said it's, he, that too much is left out of Lucretius. He said what's left out is romantic love. What's left out is the love of knowledge for its own sake. What's le left out are all of the sort of vigorous virtues. So he, he didn't like uh, Epicurus because he thought it was too much like a sort of thinned out version of Buddhism. I, he might have been wrong about Buddhism, but what he meant by that was Epicurus tried to avoid, according to Santayana, tragedy and misfortune in his life by reducing his desires to the very minimum, that couldn't be thwarted. So if you don't fall in love with anybody, you're never going to be bitterly disappointed by anybody. If you, if you only want uh, cheese and tiny sip of wine, if you can get that far, at least of water, then you're not going to be unhappy. Uh, if you're moderately poor, if you're really, really desperately poor, you'll be unhappy. But you're thinning, thinning down your desires. And Santayana, when he wrote about Lucretius, who he thought was one of the great Western poets, he said, it's too thin, it's too, it, I, he, didn't, he liked, even though he never embodied this himself, he said he liked to be around people who took their passions seriously. Uh, 
Although, uh, uh, and so he liked to live in pre-modern Spain, which he did. I mean, pre-modern Spain meaning early, early 20th century Spain. He liked that, he said, because people take their passion there, but he never did. I mean, just briefly, as a mm -hmm. side answer to you, mm -hmm. if what John is saying in this book is right, and it seems to me it is, then certainly our experiences and our fantasies about romantic love are going to be equally informed by monotheism, say. Mm. So, a possible, this is a little psychoanalytic, but one possible link in terms of your question would be something like, if somebody must know what's going on, it's God. When you fall in love with somebody, you have the belief that they know you in some way. Mm. So it would be a fantasy of knowledge. Yeah, an illusion. And it, yes, an illusion, but it would be a very powerful like religion. Illusion. Yeah, so, that, so what you'd find, and, and it's very vivid in, the, in this book, is how pervasive and how, in a way, a religious language yes. infiltrates and pervades everything, yeah. in, and especially in the place where you're least likely to find yes. it, atheism. And, and so, it, in a yeah. way, it, religion becomes what sex was for Freud. It's everywhere. I agree. That's a very. I hadn't thought of that at all. It's very like Freud's view of sex, of sex, of sexuality. I mean, he's finding it in jokes, in yeah. gestures, and, yeah. and of course, in Puritanism, yeah. in the repression of sex. Yeah. It's almost ubiquitous. And similarly, I think religion is is like that now. Because you could then ask, and I ask, but I only what is religion then? Because I've said there are many, many different types of religions, including many atheist religions. You could say, well, what is it then? What is it? And again, I just offer a pragmatic elucidation or suggestion. I'd say a, a religious impulse or a form of life is one where the meaning of that type of life is given by something which is extra-human. Yeah. Um, in other words, which seems to come outside of the human world. And of course, some people, when they write of romantic love, write of in that way. They say, all my experience before that was completely impoverished, and then suddenly this happened to me, bang. Yeah. And so finally, I was known. Finally, yeah. I was known, and finally, I knew. Yeah. That would be an illusion, of course. Right, yeah. uh, but of course, it could be a valuable illusion. And I think the trick of it yeah. all, which is probably impossible to pull off, is to be able to distinguish between illusions that are genuinely harmful and life-denying and ones that are quite uh, life-enhancing and benign. That's the, it's what, for example, that great, 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 great poet, Stevens. Wallace Stevens said. He said, we're looking for the supreme fiction. Not that it's out there, we're actually looking means try to make it fiction which we can live by and which will be pleasant. He said it will have to give pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, many fictions have been very destructive of, in the lives both of those who've lived by them and those who've in some other way been subjected to them. This is a question for both of you following on from that. Mm. Um, uh, and ultimately, I suppose it's a question about solitude. Um, I think Schopenhauer makes the claim somewhere that no religion has achieved world status without some kind of solution to the problem of death or some doctrine of personal mm. immortality. Um, and on that note, I suppose, could one ever imagine a sacred festivals of godless mysticism? <laughs> Do you want to answer that, Oshman? <laughs> well, if we leave the festival bit out. Presumably this is a question about what, what godless mysticism might look like mm -hmm. and how much it could be a group phenomena, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, it would seem to me, following on a bit from what John was saying, I could imagine a definition of religion that would be along the lines of it is the languages people have found for what matters most to them. Mm -hmm. The question is whether you need anything to sanction that that is superhuman, because mm -hmm. that's an easy, easily secularizable thought. The phrase godless mysticism seems to me to be powerful either as negative theology, mm. as in you can only imagine God in ways that are unimaginable by definition, or it would mean there would be a different idea about mysticism. It wouldn't need an authority. It would be mm. without authority. And that seems to me mm. to be a very interesting idea. I'm not, though, I think, you know, Schopenhauer is a very interesting philosopher, uh, but if he said that, and I think you're right, he did, he was wrong, because lots of the religions that have spread the most and lasted the longest have not promised personal immortality. Yeah. In fact, I wrote somewhere, Buddhism is an attempt to escape from immortality. Yeah. What Buddhism wants is to become mortal. And Greek polytheism was like that. They often, they often uh, in Greek fables and legends, the gods are shown as envying humans because humans are mortal. 
by the way, there's a, a magnificent novel um, by a semi-forgotten author who was once semi-well-known, Theodore Powers, called um, Mr. Weston's Good Wine, which is about an old man who arrives in a village in a battered-up old car and goes around distributing wine, the sweet wine of love and the heavy dark wine of death. And, the, and is accompanied by a, a, a companion, a, a, a tall young man, and it's God. And he's come around and this is the world he created. He'd forgotten about it for a long time, but here it is. And he loves it. In fact, he loves it so much. Um, at the end of the book, he says to his, uh, his angel Gabriel, his companion, he said, uh, see that pixel? Pour it in the car. Strikes a match. They both vanish. God has annihilated himself. What he longed for, this, this God, was to become human, to become part of the world he'd created, but he couldn't do that because he was God, so he decided to annihilate himself. I think that's a more, far more, there's nothing a hundredth as provocative in any of the new atheists as that. And yet, Powers spent a lot of his, well, he had no religious beliefs, I don't believe, I don't think. He spent a lot of his life in, his, in churches. John, I've been following your work for a while. Uh, you rarely make connections between your thought, you mostly make connections between your thought and other novelists. Yeah. Uh, what if I, let me ask, what if I ask you to name a movie that best embodies your work? What would be that movie? Well, when I published Straw Dogs, I did get a few approaches to, to, to that effect. Um, and I'm not, I don't have the skills of a movie maker. It would depend what it would be, because of course, one way it could be done would be, in all of my recent books, I've, con I've had, so to speak, short biographies of people to sad. Uh, uh, Conrad, um, Santiana, uh, and others. So I suppose you could do it like that. I simply haven't, haven't got, got those. Your favorite movie that captures your progress? Hmm. That's a good question. If you have to name one. If I had to name one, that's terribly difficult, isn't it? I will try. You see, a movie that simply portrays the horror of life is to me lacking. So I wouldn't reply as J.G. Ballard used to reply when he was asked what was his favorite movie. He said it was a Russian movie. It came out of the Gorbachev period called, uh, I think, Vol, which I think means thief. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, so, no, it was called Seeing. Seeing, seeing. that's right, it wasn't, it was called Seeing. And it was a view of the Nazi invasion of um, the Soviet Union by a child. I've seen it once. Not sure I've got the guts to see it twice. He said he saw it twice, but Ballard. So that it's a vision of truth, but it's 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 lacking. The very end of it shows the child has grown up, and he's fighting in the Balkans in the in the Yugoslav War. He's in the same horrendous, cyclical, unendurable violence that he actually lived in. So I'd want sort of something more. Um, Affirmative, and perhaps it would be another Russian movie, actually, oddly enough, Solaris, the original one. The original one in the Soviet period. And the reason why that's kind of beautiful to me is it has a different conception of God in it. God is very playful, very playful. God doesn't actually, have any of you seen it? Yeah, the original one, not the American one, not the Clooney one. Uh, the original poetic, or read the book, you should read the book by them as well. It's a book about miracles. It's a story about miracles, but they're cruel miracles because they, they're playful miracles, not miracles of... That seems to me it's a very poetic, playful, inexhaustibly material, mysterious, and partly affirmative because if you can endure the miracles, you can, you can live your life maybe in a... So that, that is one, but it's very, it would be very hard for me to pick one, but I am a big movie maker, and one of the reasons I'm not gone along with suggestions about making movies is that I admire the movies that are really great movies too much uh, to be able to think that what I could write could be turned into one. Um, I wonder if you could say a bit more about the loss of value we might link to atheism, mm -hmm. the kind of sense that the world's falling apart or whatever. Because I, I really like this pluralistic understanding where you can kind of flip through the Western canon and kind of take what you want to make your life meaningful. But if someone's properly lost I don't think that kind of pluralistic way of understanding is very compelling. I think you need like a really strong ism or a system or something to kind of pull you out of that sense of loss. Would you buy that? Would you think if someone's properly 
there's nothing left in your value system, what would you kind of prescribe for them? It's just a fact that there are no such systems. I mean, if you convert to some religion, you'll find that every religion in the world now is deeply internally divided. Anglicanism and Catholicism in Christianity are deeply divided over gay love, gay sex. Islam is divided in multiple ways over theology. And uh, uh, there is no rock of ages. Uh, so, and I think that's always been true. So it's, it's natural. I don't despise the impulse for a system, but I don't think it's uh, a reasonable way of proceeding. Um, not in the sense of logic, but I don't think it sort of brings results. I'm more attracted to the Kierkegaard parable, where he says, he said, philosophers are like people who live in hovels at the bottom of a mountain. And each morning they go up to the top and build something and then come back down at the bottom and live in the hovel. It's better to clean up the hovel. It's better to, to sort of put a little bit of order in your life here and there. That's all you can actually do. But you'll find, I mean, you could say, it's politics. I'll join some um, political sect. Uh, well, you'll find the thing about political sects is they are fissiparous. They divide. When I lived in America for uh, many years, on and off, I got to know some of the disciples of Ayn Rand. The interesting thing was, apart from the fact that they called themselves the collective, which was odd for people who were very individualistic, and apart from the fact that they all tried to copy her in smoking, with not just smoking, you had to smoke, of course. Uh, that was part of the rational life, smoking. Uh, but you also had to smoke uh, using what she used, which was a, uh, a cigarette holder, because she was originally Russian. Uh, but one thing I noticed about it is they all hated each other. <laughs> they split up into sects with the true, object, the true Randians, the true, true Randians. The IRA did the same. There was the IRA, then there were the provosts, then there were the real provosts, then there was the real, real, etc. So the, it's the, the nature of, human, of, of the human world is to be vociferous and to split. And the reason for that, to my mind, is that that's the nature of each single individual, which is to be internally split, internally divided. If you're really lost, then the thing to do, I think, is, is wait, not give up, and then something will appear, something will clarify. Um, that might sound optimistic, but I think it's true. How about, how about a triangle of philosophy, psychoanalysis, and literature as mm -hmm. a place for operating in life? <laughs> I, I think it's a question of finding the things that work for you. Yes. I mean, they could be called lots of things but you're going to inherit a kind of cultural pool of things. And depending on you know, class, education, economics, and so on, you will have access to certain things. And you'll make what you can of what you can get hold of. You see, I think the question about loss in a way is interesting in relation mm. to this. Because I think that the risk always is, of the, is, is the part of oneself that wishes to narrow one's mind, mm. that wants to, kind of, as it were, shrink the canon, or wants to limit the repertoire. Mm. because. If you believe in an open-ended repertoire, you believe in some sense of open-ended possibility. Mm. You know, think Camus says, you know, people who have methods are people who don't have character. Well, I don't know if that's literally true, but it, it seems to me it's an argument for what Mill called experiments in living, mm. of trying things out, mm. not needing to come to a final absolute conclusion. Mm. But if you happen to have heard of philosophy, psychoanalysis and theology, mm. and, and they, these languages actually enliven you, then you're onto a good thing. And not to be too afraid of loss. Yeah. yeah. It's natural to be afraid of loss, by the right. way. One shouldn't, again, despise it. It's like being afraid of being burnt. But not having everything controlled by a fear of loss, because then you'll be stuck with what you have just at the moment. You'll want to hang on to whatever, uh, whatever that might be. You seem to place the value of animals yeah. on a par with that of uh, humanity, humans. Yeah. Um, do you think it's uh, as important? Excuse me. On the part of human animals. Oh yes, yes. So cats, I think you mentioned yeah. specifically. Do you think it's on that basis? Is it as important to fight against, uh, say, for example, cat suffering as it is uh, human suffering? It's a choice. You see, I mean, one of the um, I don't know what's happened to him actually, but um, I'd love to know. Uh, um, did any of you remember the cat man of Aleppo? Do you know who he was? He was a, uh, or is, I hope if he's still alive. An ambulance man, not a world famous person, not someone who'd, not a celebrity, not a philosopher, not an academic. He was an ambulance driver who saved up to go around Aleppo gathering cats. 
from the ruins, and dogs too, I think. Um, that was a choice of his. I would, it might have been more than that. It might have been almost a fate. Mm. He might have felt himself kind of drawn outside the circle of human suffering, which he'd experienced a lot of, I'm sure, to doing that. The thing is, there's no, I mean, I think the idea that there is, at the back of the idea is which is most important is something like a medieval great chain of being. You may have heard about that, you know, which, which is a sort of mixture of Christianity and Plato. That everything in the world has value in, in a single hierarchy. Well, if you're really, if you step out of monotheism altogether, what sense can be made of that? It's nonsensical. What sense can be made of uh, the claim that humans are the most valuable animals in the world? You simply, I mean, the advantage of the kind of atheism that I think we find in Conrad and Santayana is that it opens up a wide range of ways in which you can live yeah. and a wide range of things that you can attach value to. I mean, it's very, very opposed, this way of thinking, to what's now called um, effective altruism. If you have effective altruism, you kind of top things up. You put them in the, the great utilometer. And uh, so this is why, if you read some of the Singer and others, paradoxically, you might think, is also a great animal liberationist. But if you, uh, uh, if you read some of his writings, he said, well, you know, really, I have to advise most people I meet who can do it to become merchant bankers. Even if they hate merchant banking, yes, merchant banking is the thing. Because they can make a lot of money and then they can help lots of people and so they'll produce more. You know, I find that ridiculous. One shouldn't willfully choose a life which is meaningless to you or even repugnant to you because you, have, you make a calculation that it will benefit other people. Um, you should live the life that you find meaningful. And that might, and I think will for nearly everyone, because very few people opt for solitude. And most of those, it's quasi-solitude because if they're religious in a moment, there's some higher spiritual reality that they're communicating with. It'll involve other people. That's what you, you should, you should um, uh, live the life that is meaningful to you. It's, I mean, and that, you, you just find what works, but without being too afraid of it not working, because it won't work fully. <laughs> so, uh, it, and it won't work forever. And it won't work forever. Maybe not even for long, uh, but that's not a reason to try it out. So if you would say, well, you know, we're all immersed in moral contradictions. We all use some medications, or you will all throughout your life as you get older. You use which have been obtained through animal testing. I'm adamantly opposed to animal testing, but some of the medications I use come from that. So what, what, what would I do? I guess I could be like a kind of vegetarian of medications and only use ultra-natural ones, which would probably mean not using penicillin or, but I don't do that. We're all involved in this, and the best we can do, it seems to me, is to make a comp compromise that we find reasonably, um, reasonably distant. But it's perfectly, com com it's perfectly imaginable that someone would choose only to focus on animal suffering. But again, I wouldn't want it to be only about suffering, because the thing about other animals, apart from the human animal, is how magnificent their lives can be. So what you want to do is to enable them to live these lives, if it's at all possible. And that's getting harder than it was in the past, because the habitats in which they used to exist are being destroyed, in which they used to thrive are being destroyed. Although there's a counterweight to that, which is that native animals, along with other forms of natural life, are invading cities. And I welcome that invasion. Um, though people say if I woke up and found a, a fox chewing away at my nose, I might feel, might feel differently. But I do. So it's a choice. It's a choice. One shouldn't look for structure in the world, quasi-theistic structure in the world, which gives you the answer to that question. For one reason, it always privileges the looker. We're always the top dog in that. And I think pretty well. I mean, there may be some beyond us, angels and gods and, uh, and Gnostic deities, but they'll all be modeled on us or better versions. Uh, or what we imagine to be better version. I think that's a, if, if you want to step outside of monotheism, which is what you should want to do if you want to be an atheist, because it's the dominant form of uh, religion among us, and this, uh, then you should put that whole way of thinking aside. Just say, well, what do I care about the most? It, it, it might be caring about animals, or it might be promoting rare versions of Tus Tuscan cuisine. <laughs> <laughs> it's up to you.
both seem to have given very positive views of um, how we should make our lives. I wonder what you think about resignation. <coughs> the great project of our time, if I don't believe in great projects, would be to make resignation heroic. I'm joking. Uh, in other words, I mean, what I think is that we, we all come to resignation about some aspects of our lives. For example, I'm 70. I'd like to live a lot longer in health. I might like, like to live dead, but I probably won't. I mean, I have nothing wrong with me that I know of, but it's unlikely that I'm, you know, unless medical science improves, et cetera, to a greater extent. There are inevitably aspects of our lives to which, and of the world, to which we must resign ourselves. And I think it would be good if we could get some sense of the value and, and virtue of resignation, but it's very much against contemporary sensibility. You mean you're resigning yourself to the injustice of the world? That's terrible. And you can only do that if you're extremely privileged, they say. Well, quite a few of the people in my book, Greeks have actually perished in, uh, in the Nazi period and so on others. They did, so to speak, cultivate. They cultivated a mixture of resignation and fatalistic self-assertion. That might be the hardest thing to do of all, to cultivate a kind of resignation. Very difficult if it involves the lives and deaths of people that you, that you love or your own life and death. Uh, but I think there is a place, for, but it's, it's a very unmodern virtue for the reason I've suggested, because it suggests, what, what it sort of implies there is a certain kind of, uh, not indifference, but an acceptance that the world is not going to become, except in minute particulars, which maybe you can affect, after all, you can't abolish suffering or slavery or, or violence or the, the, the Yazidi women can't abolish rape, but they can kill the rapists they get their hands on. Now, many people say that's a terrible thing to, to admire. Uh, you know, one should understand why, they, why these rapists. I admire it. Uh, but what they may well know that um, they can't even affect the context of their own struggle. It's in the hands of big powers that will decide things put in lots of weapons, take them out, carve up territory, carve it up again. That's what will happen. And yet they may go on, and that's a kind of act of resignation, if you like. So we shouldn't think of resignation as just being lying down. It's what I meant when earlier on I talked about active fatalism. Even though you don't think you can alter this. You, then again, I wouldn't exclude someone saying, well, I've done my bit in fighting. I've had four or five years of fighting, nearly killed two or three times. Most of my friends are dead. I'm leaving. I'm going to live in Tuscany, back to Tuscany. If I can get, if I can get through the immigration system, I can get some money, if I can, I've done my bit, I'm going to go there and forget it. And I think that's a perfectly human response. And I would admire that too, and many people too, because they're entitled to it. I think there's a difference between resigning and being sacked. Um, <laughs> I think that, in a way, resignation may be kind of optimistic. Mm. Because it would imply that you have a great deal of autonomy. Yes. And of course, about some things you do and about some things you don't. Mm. It could be a sustaining illusion that I resigned as opposed to got mm. sacked. But it's likely, I think, in the ultimate situations that you're going to want to resign just before you get sacked. Good point. If you have time. If you have time. <laughs> I did. Did you? Which one? Resign. Do you resign or get sacked? Just before getting sacked. <laughs> How was it? It was good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. That was wonderful, Alex. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.